everybody. Welcome back to Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the hippest string players alive. I'm Matt Bell, your very fortunate host. We live in amazing times. We are fortunate to have many, many stars in the electric violin world. There are precious few legends, though, and our guest today is one of them. If you don't know who Tracy Silverman is, you're in for a wild ride. He's one of the OGs. Your eyes are about to be open to a whole new world of string playing. If you do know who Tracy Silverman is, I hope you learn something new about him in the next hour or so. We want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Electric Violin Shop, the one place you can call or visit and find the very best in instruments, bows, pedals, amps, and advice on how to get the most out of your violin, viola, cello, or string bass. EVS doesn't just sell gear, though. They become a clearinghouse for information about all things in the amplified string world. Swing by Electric Violin Shop YouTube channel for tons of awesome content with gear reviews, teaching, demos, highlights from your favorite artist, or our own staff members. Also, visit electricviolinshop.com to buy your next piece of gear. Tracy was gracious enough to invite me to his beautiful home in an amazing wooded retreat in Nashville, Tennessee. We sat down in his recording studio and chatted for about an hour or so. We'll take some breaks and listen to some of Tracy's music, like the tune we're listening to right now, Third Stone from the Sun. But go ahead and grab your favorite beverage and join us on a musical journey with Tracy Silverman, rock star violinist. So we're sitting here at Tracy Silverman's house in like this beautiful wooded rolling hills estate. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. inspirational, so serene, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's just this little corner of Tennessee that we uh, we lucked into, this little log cabin. It's 200 years old, these logs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, it was actually moved over here from Dixon County about 100 years ago, it turns out, but wow. I don't know. No, but completely we'll keep on we're just chatting yeah. you know so. yeah so we just uh, spent a few days together out at mark woods camp yes. in kansas yes, super did. inspirational your your yeah. concert was mind-blowing oh thanks man and uh did some of your compositions right uh yes i did a piece of mine called matisse which is from my second electric violin concerto called, called between the kiss and the chaos and it's five movements, based, each movement based on an artwork, a great iconic work of art. Uh, so that was based on Matisse's La Danse. Um, yeah, and it's it's a fun one because it's it's um, it's just kind of a straight up loop thing. You just kind of stack these loops, um, and uh, it just gets symphonic. You know, it gets really big. Yeah, we're gonna play some of your mu music during this yeah. interview, so we'll get people a chance to listen to it. But it's uh, he came out and just did this complete solo violin thing, no uh, no band, yeah. no anything, and the the hall was just full of sound. It was a really incredible. Yeah, well, it was experience. nice that that hall had those subs. Those subs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and everybody's like, "How do you get that bass down?" I'm like, uh, "Subs." Yeah. <laughs> you know. So you yeah, yeah. You play a six string violin yep. that uh, you designed the instrument, right? Yes. Yep, it's a, um, you know, I started making these instruments, um, Mark Wood and I go way back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I met, I met Mark first, I think it was 81, 80 or 81, believe it or not, and uh, I was playing 
an acoustic violin in a in a rock band. My first rock band at, out of Juilliard, right? Graduated Juilliard, and I was like, and so people don't. You were running. Yep. And so people don't get get the wrong impression because you know I I, I play electric violin. I do a lot of rock and stuff like that, and. Uh, I have my career has taken a, a you know real a lot of a lot of turns since Juilliard you know that are non classical uh, and finally developing into you know what I call post classical string playing which is you know by that I, I don't mean better than classical I just mean that it's something that I've added after I learned classical it's kind of you know second language kind of stuff with rock and jazz but. Um, but I, 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 I often, you know, really make a point of making it clear, especially to electric violin players who maybe a lot of your, uh, you know, your audience for this podcast is that I love classical music. Um, I, my whole career was formed, you know, uh, classical music is very, uh, you know, formational in my life and, um, so, you know, I don't ever want to seem like I'm slagging Juilliard or anything like that, but I have very distinct ideas about what the way we should be teaching string players uh, that has a lot to do with things that they don't teach at Juilliard. Sure. You know, uh, this is the post part of post-classical. So, but at any rate... <laughs> Get back to the electric violin. Uh, Mark and I go way back. I'll tell you a quick story. My first rock band. So I, made, I graduated Juilliard, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to audition for orchestras. Uh, I was being sort of groomed to be a soloist, and I didn't really want to do contests. Because contests in the classical world is a little bit like contest fiddling, I guess, but uh, way more intense, I sure. think. A whole lot less fun going on at the contests. Um, and I was not enjoying that level of stress that was, you know, ex fairly extreme Sure. at Juilliard, where people are literally practicing 10 hours a day, not saying, oh, I like, I practice 10, no, they're actually in that practice room for 10 hours without leaving, and, uh, and that was just, I was, that was not why I was interested in music, you know? It was like the Olympics, I was like, I, 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 you know, I'm into the creative part, I, I don't really want to you know, be the guy who's making the least number of mistakes. Sure. Because that's what it boiled down to. So, I joined a rock band right after graduating. I'm like, I want to do this. I want to I want to play music that my friends from high school are going to love, are going to like. And I want to sound like an electric guitar because that's what they're used to listening to. To them, a violin sounds old-fashioned. Right. It's from the 19th century, which it is, primarily. That's where it was, that's where it blossomed and, you know... 18th and 19th centuries. So I, so I joined this rock band, and I've got an old beat-up um, school fiddle, like, you know, $20 violin, sure. that I put a pickup on. And I show up at this, at this prog, heavy prog rock band that's rehearsing under the, a bagel store, the basement of a bagel store in Co-op City in the Bronx. That's this awesome. big housing yeah, project. And they're really excited because I'm a Juilliard, like, you can play Paganini, you know, they're like, yeah. until that, you know. And so they kind of uh, had me audition for the band, and and uh, and it's a lot of fun, and the guitar player's playing through a Marshall stack, and the 
keyboard player has got a whole PA system that he's playing for just for his like five. He's got a profit five. Like a wall of sound. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is back in the eighties. You know, yeah. he's Keith Emerson and stuff. And uh, and the drummers just got like Neil Peart. He's got like more <laughs> drums. Yeah, you know? so they had like I don't know where these these kids were coming up with the money, but I walk in with this little Cube 60 rolling amp, which I still own. Uh, it was my first amp, and a crappy violin with a pickup on it. And they start playing, and I start turning it up, and I can't hear myself. I'm turning it up, and pretty soon all I hear is woo, right? Because it's a, it's a hot, it's a sure. acoustic violin, and I, and I couldn't get any sound, you know, so they're like, dude, you gotta get an electric violin. Have you heard about, there's this guy in a band out on Long Island, because we're in the Bronx, we're pretty close right there, um, called Come to Papa. And he's got like a violin that's like an arm with a blade through it. And I'm like, what? And so this was all pre-internet. This sure. is the 80s. Somehow I tracked him down, called him up, I don't know how I found him. And um, and he's like, and it's Mark, Mark Wood, you know. And, and he's like, yeah, come on, come on out, I'll, I'll help you make a violin. You need an electric violin. You can't play on one of those things. You know, he's, yeah. he's yeah, exactly the same, yeah. same as he is now. And he's like, oh, well, come on, let me make you a real island, you know. So I go out there, his dad's got a woodworking shop, because he's a, a, car, a woodworker, last name, Wood. Wood. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Woodworker. Woodwork. And um, so we make this, you know, solid instrument, and we made, I don't know, we made two or three. He was kind of showing me how he did it, and then I started making my own. Um, oh, i got to finish the story. I'm in Co-op City, so they, so the guys, so they, like, before they told me to get an electric violin, the guitar player was, had, took some gaff tape. He's like, in the rehearsal, it's like, we, we just, all we need to do is close your F-holes. If we can just close those off, it'll be fine. So we gaff tape it, and I'm like, whatever, it's an old crappy violin. Gaff tape it in, didn't work, still howling. So he's like, you got to kill the resonance. you got to fill the inside of that with, like, foam, right? So I go back to Yonkers, where I live that night, and I go in, into... Um, Woolworths was the closest thing I had near me. Like, that was like a drug. That was like a hardware store. Like, do you have any? Because this guitar player said, "Get that stuff like they use for planting. It's like these white beads, like foam. You know, just pour it in there." Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I go in there and I ask for if they have anything like that potting thing. He goes, "Well, we got this mulch, you know, like a bag. It's super light." I was like, "That'll work." So I get a bag of this light mulch. It's got like vermiculite in it, whatever those little white dots are, and. um and I spoon it in there, and I'm, like, filling the F-holes with this thing. The whole thing is filled. And then I take some duct tape, and I, like, taping up the F-holes. And I show, and I come up, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to rock this tomorrow night. I'm going to be able to crank this thing finally. I got, like, an electric instrument. And so I show up the second night at rehearsal, open my violin case, and the top of the violin was sitting about an inch above the instrument. <laughs> it just exploded. The strings get, like, kabong, had all popped up. Because the, the humidity of the potting soil, it just expanded the whole instrument. It just exploded. That's awesome. So that's when they said, you got to find electric violin. That is so attention. metal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so Mark uh, built my first instruments. And then, to get back to your original question um, about the electric violin that I'm playing now, it's hollow. I started diverging from Mark's instruments, which were all solid instruments. Mm -hmm. And until very recently, have always been solid. He's got a new thing called the Legend. I yeah, think. he's just starting. But um, and my whole thing, we you know, I sort of took a different angle, and because I started playing music that wasn't all distorted, all metal, uh, I started playing stuff where I wanted it to sound cleaner and get a, a more acoustic-like sound. So I started making these hollow instruments and uh, designing them, and not making them. I had guitar makers finally after my first few tries. I was like, hey, you know what? 
it's hard enough to play these things. Right. I don't yeah, know. exactly. Being a luthier is a whole other thing. So I would commission guitar makers to build them back in New York and uh, all along the way, wherever I lived, and so made a bunch. And the most recent one's made here in Nashville by Joe Glazer, who's a great guitar uh, luthier here. Does work on a lot of the country stars' guitars. And you never knew you were standing there, and Vince Gill walked in last time I was there, and you know, it's like one of those places. Wow, Nashville, very yeah. Nashville. Yeah, exactly, very Nashville. Here's some fun: Futureman and Silverman live at the Matthews Opera House. A cover of I Wish by Stevie Wonder. By the way, if it ain't drums, it's Tracy. So you did some stuff with Turtle Island String Quartet. Yeah. That's probably one of the things that I think I first heard mm -hmm. of you doing that stuff. Um, talk a little bit about that group and, and yeah. how it started. And... Yeah. Well, um, you know, after years of, of uh, bouncing around rock bands in the New York area where I was living, um, I just finally had had enough of New York and I moved to Minnesota. My wife's brother lived there and it was a great town for rock and roll, which is what I was interested in indie rock stuff so we moved out there and um out there and i you know it was a struggle i'm getting to the turtle island part i promise it's all good <laughs> it's your story you tell it how you want <laughs> i'm just doing a little backstory so we've been there for a few years i'm struggling to find work i finally got a gig at um, McAllister college as adjunct faculty which was like a big deal for me i'm you know I was a young guy and it was like my first actual you know decent teaching job and um, semi-steady income, which I'd never had because I was always freelancing. That was good when you were a musician. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, being, you know, doing weddings and blah, blah, blah. So, so we're halfway through a bottle of champagne, my wife and I. We had a new baby who was like three months old. And, uh, um, 
and we're halfway through this bottle of champagne celebrating my new gig. We were about, we were closing on a house out in the suburbs. We were living in this crappy little, you know, first house that we sure. got and that we have fixer upper in uh, Minneapolis. And we were, because it was in a really kind of dangerous neighborhood and we had this baby and somebody got shot right in front of our house, we decided we were going to move out. <laughs> so my wife said, that's it. So we had a house out in the suburbs and uh, we were closing the following Thursday. The following Tuesday. This is Thursday. Phone rings, halfway through a bottle of champagne. Hey, Tracy, you remember me? This is Danny Seidenberg. Um, hey, Danny. Yeah, we you, we were on a wedding. You played at a wedding in New Jersey at the West Orange Country Club. It was about six years ago. I'm like, oh, you know, hey, I'm not in the New York area. I'm not doing weddings anymore. I figure it's the groom's brother. Yes, yeah. man, whatever, something like that. Sorry, man, I can give you some recommendations if you're looking for a fiddle player. Goes, well, we're looking for a fiddle player, but it's not for a wedding. I was playing on the wedding. We're, I'm in Turtle Island. We're looking for a viol first violinist because Dave Balchristian has to leave. Have you ever heard of Turtle Island? I was like, yeah, I've heard of Turtle Island. He goes, well, do you want to um, audition? I'm like, oh, dude, man, I just accepted a job here in Minneapolis, and we're closing on a house. And ah, if you called me a week ago, maybe I could have. Right. He's like, are you sure it's in California? And like, it had always been my dream to live in California. As a New Yorker, every East Coaster wants to live in California. Sure. So um, I said, I'm sorry, man. I hang up the phone. And we finished the bottle of champagne. And we're just sitting there. We're looking at each other. <laughs> and like, I'm just going to call United. I'm just going to see. Because <laughs> this is pre-internet, right? You can't just like. It's like, eh, let me just see. And I call. And for just. One of those crazy stars aligning thing. They had a, a crazy special. This is Thursday. She's like, well, no, I can't. There's nothing next week. But if you could leave Saturday morning, there's a $99 round trip special. I'm like, what? Really? And she's like, yeah, I think so. You're like, I think it's. This. And she's like, check it. It's like, yeah. And I was like, I'll take it. I run out there Saturday morning by. Saturday afternoon, we're having uh, Chinese food, you know, after a rehearsal, and they're like, do you want to do the band? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so we closed down the house, bought it anyway. Oh, my goodness. Because my wife was like, the people who we were buying them from, this is now Sunday, we're making this decision, we're closing on Tuesday. The sure. woman was like nine months pregnant. She's like, we can't back out, she'll have a miscarriage. They're like, really? You want to? She's like, well, who knows if Turtle Line's going to work out, let's buy the house. So we bought the house, sold it. Like four months later, oh my I moved goodness. out to California. It was crazy. It's one of those weird life mo change moments. That I bet a lot of you know your listeners are like, Where, you know, how do you do this stuff when you got this job and you have that job, and you know, you just never you say yes to everything. Yeah, say that's yes. a Christian house thing. Yeah, too. Yeah, say yes, figure it out later, yeah. man. Because you can always, you can always figure if there are opportunities, there's always a way to make it work. Never say no to an opportunity. Here's another little piece of advice, since I'm old and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's about the only thing I'm good for anymore. Um, a lot of young people, uh, I, I tell this to a lot of, like, college age or high school age musicians who are talking about careers and how do you go about getting to do what you want to do? Look at you, you got to do what you want to do in life. How did you do that, right? You know, which is semi-true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. There's a lot, a lot about my life. It isn't yeah. exactly what I want to do, but you know, it supports what I do want to do. Um, so I say, you know, 
think of it as a target. Think of your career as a target. You have the bullseye of that target is exactly what you want to do. So like be a recording performer, rock star, right? The second ring of outside of that is maybe being in the band of a rock star. Sure. Right? Maybe the third tier outside of that is teaching. Mm-hmm. Having a good teaching job that's really that you really love. Maybe outside of that is doing weddings that you don't really love, but you can make a living. Maybe outside the furthest ring of that is, I don't know, you know, you're starting to get outside of music. And maybe you're uh, working in a bar that's got a lot of cool music, but you're actually, you know, serving beer. Sure. You know, and until finally you're, you know, working at a horrible restaurant that you don't like. Um, so point is that, you know, not every opportunities come in your life. You never know when they're going to show up. They show up because of a student that you taught 10 years ago who's now running a business. They show up because you played at a wedding in in New Jersey six months before, and then somebody calls you up because they remembered that you played jazz violin. Opportunities come at crazy, unexpected times, and they're rarely in your target. In, in your bullseye. But if they're anywhere on that, anywhere on that dartboard at all, you say yes and you figure out how to get cl- the next opportunity closer and you stay there until the one gets that brings you a ring closer. And then you stay there until one gets you a ring closer. And little by little, you work your way towards your target. That's, but a lot of times, especially with classical players or, I don't know, a lot of players, especially if they're good, you know, they're like, I'm not going to take anything unless it's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to be really artistically pure, right? I'm not going to compromise. Well, guess what? You can be holding that position for the rest of your life and still be serving, you know, a waiter in a restaurant. So yeah, I think not that there's anything wrong with being a waiter. Demands of purity um, very seldom take you any place worth being. You know, it's important to have that that integrity, let's call that word integrity, um, to have that integrity as your your north star. That's your sense of morality. That's your conscious. That's your that's your belief system, kind of. You know, you have to hold on to that for all it's worth in this world. Uh, so there's there's this incredible push to hold that. And yet, at the same time, you cannot let that run your your career choices, uh, you know, um, too much. That's what I'm trying to say is keep that integrity, but also take any opportunity that's on your dartboard, anywhere near your dartboard, sure. especially if you're young. Yeah, I mean, you look at the trajectory of your career, and, and like, you're playing a wedding, which led to something else. And I did that for 10 or more years before it led to yeah. something else. And every now and then you're going to get a call now. To do something that, yep. was, eh, you know, maybe it's not exactly what I... Wait, how much did you say? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we probably make that work. Yeah, and you have to. If you're a musician, if you're a freelancer, your job is to stay working, as you, you know, as everybody knows. And sometimes that work is stuff you love, sometimes it's not. Yeah. Sometimes it's for the love, sometimes it's for the money. You know? That's the way it goes. The that's, good thing that's is your you life. get to do it for both. Yeah. And that's your life. And if you don't, if you're not okay with that, then do something else. Speaking of Turtle Island String Quartet, here they are with Seven Steps to Heaven.
So you were at Juilliard, yep. meaning that you were at one point staring down the barrel of a career in classical music, right? <laughs> That's a lovely way to, to put it, yes. Um, at, at one point, did you sort of go, mm, maybe this isn't for me, and how, how did that process yeah. go? Yeah, that, that point came actually very early on um, at Juilliard, actually. Um, I was, I started out, my first year of college was actually at the Chicago Musical College at Roosevelt University, um, and uh, I had been studying there as like a pre-college kid when I was 10 or 12, and you know, I uh, had a teacher there who was amazing, whose name is Deborah Schwartz, who at that time was Deborah Wood, uh, who's still around teaching uh, in the Bay Area, uh, and was incredibly uh, important in my uh, development as a violin player, and um, and I was kind of this child prodigy there. I got a lot of attention, and I was kind of the big deal. I started college when I was sixteen. I left high school after tenth grade, two two years early, to start college um, because I was so advanced, man. And so I was kind of this, you know, used to getting a lot of attention, sixteen year old kind of wunderkind, right? Um, did a year there, and then um, my parents moved from that area to the East Coast, and they're like, let's see if we can transfer you over to Juilliard, you'll be closer to home, because I was still a kid, you know, and uh, and I think we can get you into Juilliard, because when I was younger, when we lived in New York, I had gone there in pre-college, so I knew my old teacher there, and he arranged to get me an audition with Galamian. I ended up at Juilliard when I was 17. And as soon as I got to Juilliard, I realized that I was no longer a big deal. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I was, you know, in the midst, my class included Bobby McDuffie, Jimmy Lynn, um, Nigel Kennedy, uh, uh, Nadia Salerno-Sonnenberg. All of those people were in the same exact class that I was in. And they ever had careers, were playing with orchestras, and I was off on the fringes. And partly because of that, and I saw the crazy, as I was saying, the crazy competition and the Olympic kind of um, mindset that was going on there. That, and I had been, been composing since I was a kid. I was really into, interested in being creative and not so much in being perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my uh, Twitter slogan is, art is not about being perfect, it's about being a person. Okay. And yeah. that really sums up the way I think it's, it's about your individuality, not about being flawless. That has nothing to do with art. Art is about imperfection. That's what make, gives us personality. Anyway, it's a long story. But, um, so as soon as I got to Juilliard, 
I started really questioning whether this was what I wanted to do. I thought, you know, when I was in Chicago, I was like, oh, you're going to be the next, you know, Yasha Heifetz. You're a sure success. Your career is, you know, and I got to Jewel and I was like, no. Um, and what ended up happening was um, a combination of things. I was raised on a lot of pop music. I had an older brother who listened to rock and roll, so I heard a lot of that. My dad was a big jazz fan. I heard a lot of that. Um, and I was composing since I was a little kid. Um, and and then I picked up that, see that red book I got sitting out on my desk over mm -hmm. there? It's from the Juilliard Library. You can see the numbers still oh, on the yeah. back. It's like a red, you know, generic library binding, right? With the, with the white, you know, things on it. That's a book called The Agony of Modern Music. And uh, I picked that thing up, and it was making the case that um, all the great classics of uh, masterpieces of classical music were written in the popular style of its day, whether it was Mozart's in the high Viennese style, whether it was Tchaikovsky in the Russian style that was all the rage. They were all writing in a very popular idiom that everybody got. Now, some of the pieces were hits, some of them weren't, but it was all contemporary styles, yeah. right? And I was like, well, shoot. If Tchaikovsky were around today, he'd probably be writing an electric guitar concerto for right. Jimi Hendrix, you know, or maybe he would be Jimi Hendrix because he'd be a player performer, you know, kind of thing. Like Liszt was a player, you know, Paganini player, sure. I mean, player composers. Um, uh, and so, I was, and I love popular music. I had a real respect for the pop song, the Beatles, and a good short pop song. I was like, this is art, and I always felt that that was art, because I was familiar with art. Luckily, I was raised on classical music, you know, so I had a real understanding of what art could be, what a great melody sounds like, what a tight, you know, uh, Bach invention, how you use the same little phrase and make a whole piece out of that. You know, I understood the, what, you know, what made a good piece of music as opposed to maybe a less good one, um, and respected a great pop song, and I was like, you know... I don't, I don't want to be doing 100-year-old music as much as I love it. I want to be doing what they were doing, which is creating new music in our own voice, our contemporary American popular idiom, because that's what any composer should be doing. Sure. I want to play music that my friends in high school are going to dig. I want to sound like an electric guitar. So it was all bringing me to that same place. And so by the, you know, by the time I was in Juilliard for a year... I was wearing Jimi Hendrix t-shirts and, you know, had decided that I was going to do that and didn't really want to finish Juilliard. But my parents, you know, talked me into finishing, which I'm glad I did. Um, but uh, that, you know, I'd really decided to, to take a, a, a turn. So by the, as soon as I left Juilliard, I joined the rock band in the, you know, co-op city and started figuring out how to do that. I left that band for my own band called Stradivarius in New York. We were around for, I don't know, about seven or eight years in New York playing all the rock clubs. Um, CBGB's, oh, Cat yeah. Club, the China Club, and other, you know, the Rising Sun up in Yonkers and all these crappy rock bar, dive bars for years and um, paid my dues there. I call it my postgraduate work. You know, because that's when I was really learning how to play post-classical violin. I was trying to sound like the guitar, holding my violin really low, uh, cranking it through amps with distortion, figuring out which pedals work, 
which sounded good on electric violin, which pickup sounded good, and Mark was Mark Wood extremely helpful in all of this because he had already started going down that road. He had discovered Barbera pickups, mm -hmm. turned me on to that. Um, and, you know, and then I started doing, it was all my own discovery of, you know, big muffs, distortion boxes, and all that kind of stuff. And the, the technology back in the 80s was not what it is today. Sure. You know, a lot of stuff just didn't sound good on electric violins. It was all geared for guitar. So, you know, it was hard to figure out all that stuff, how to make it sound good. And, and then more importantly, uh, I was playing a rhythm violin, basically rhythm guitar, while I sang. I was the lead. And my rock bands, I refused to have guitars in the band, for the most part. I did very briefly, but um, uh, because I really felt like, uh, first of all, if there was a guitar player and the guitar and I are playing the same kind of sounds, we're overlapping a lot, people can't tell what I'm doing. They assume that it's coming out of the guitar when they sure. hear all that distortion. Um, and so I just got rid of the guitars. Like, I wanted to prove to the world and to myself, um, but and to sort of, I was thinking kind of big. I was thinking, like, I want to prove to history that this could be done, that a violin could replace a guitar in a rock band, because it really had never been done. You'd had electric, electric violins in bands, Mahat sure. Vishnu yeah. and stuff like that, and Jean-Luc, you know, was a soloist, but he wasn't being a rock and roll animal, instrument, right? right? So I wanted to play power chords uh, while I sang. So I was holding the violin way low, playing with like a quarter-sized bow so it didn't okay. get in the way. Yeah. Uh, fretted, fretted fingerboard so I could play fifths power chords mostly under while I sang so I didn't have to hunt around for pitches. Sure. Um, and did that for years and um, didn't realize it at the time until many years later looking back, I realized that those 10 years that I was you know, doing that postgraduate work at CBGB's, I was learning how to do what I now call strum bowing. I was learning how to keep time for myself while I sang with just a bass player and a drummer behind me. And th those uh, years were, you know, really important in, in figuring out all this, you know, technique of how to strum, basically, with your bow. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, how that happened. And that's, you know, before the Internet, we, we didn't have any way of knowing... Yeah. If anybody else was doing the same thing. Right? Yeah. No, it was very isolated. I was, you know, in my little pocket in New York. And it was basically me and Mark. Well, we were the only guys who were doing what we were, that we were aware of. Because um, what we were doing was definitely different from Jean-Luc and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, we were into distorted violin. We were into making it sound like a guitar. Um, and we got, you know, real close to it. Yeah. So is that when the six-string violin emerged? Started immediately. Um, the first instruments that I made with Mark, right out of Juilliard, were always six-string. Um, and I've never gone back. I, I've never played a five. Uh, and I rarely play uh, an acoustic violin these days. I will occasionally for different, you know, sessions or things like that. Sure. Um, I did one record with uh, Eugene Friesen and Phil Auberg of, of Bach improvisations that was all acoustic but um other than that it's been exclusively six string electric that's kind of been my thing and for those of you uh in your listening audience who may not be aware of uh, uh of what i do i've sort of my niche market and, I, and it is such an, a niche that i'm pretty much the only one in it <laughs> tracy silverman it's yeah. kind of a niche that i created 
you know, so I make a living. I'm the only one there. But um, it's playing electric violin concertos with orchestras. Um, John Adams wrote a, a, a piece called The Dharma at Big Sur for me, and, and it's a six-string electric violin concerto, which we recorded uh, for um, none such. Uh, Terry Riley, who's a great composer, been called the father of minimalism. He wrote a concerto for me, which we recorded for Naxos. Um, Nico Muley is a very uh, well-known young composer. He wrote a piece that we also uh, premiered at Carnegie. So, uh, you know, I, I've been doing that kind of stuff. Not to, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not uh, blowing my own horn here. I just kind of uh, informing people that that's a weird part of the world that not many people are familiar with. And sure. So I've sort of, because of the classical background that I have, and this, and years of playing non-classical music, rock and roll, real real rock, and then jazz with Turtle Island, which was acoustic. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of went back to the acoustic. That's actually that was when I the only other time that I was playing acoustic. Um, so I have this crazy sort of background, eclectic background in classical and non-classical styles, and that kind of made me uniquely qualified to do this sort of stuff that. Um, these electric violin concertos that are calling for non-classical styles, because sure. there are there's a lot there are concertos being written every day by contemporary composers that are new music that are less informed by rock and jazz and the kind of Indian music, Brazilian music, the kind of background that I have working um, in my crazy eclectic career with people like Terry Riley. Um, so it's kind of made me. Uh, able to, to play written music but with a improvisational style in a, in a fairly unique way. Yeah, so uh, There's no such thing as fairly unique, but um, <laughs> you it's know, a, yeah, individual right. it's unique or <laughs> There is or it isn't, right. Let's hear all six of those strings here. This is Tracy's Bach Redux live.
So you said that you started composing as just a little kid. Yeah. Um, how's that journey been? And, and you know, because obviously it's easy to find teachers to to work on your playing. Yeah. Um, how's the, the compositional journey been? Um, it's what I love probably more than anything. Um, and it's and I'm completely self-taught. Uh, well, I shouldn't say complete. I took some. I did take some composition lessons when I was about eleven and twelve from uh, a guy. But um, um, you know, it's just what I've learned from sitting in orchestras, really, and listening to how instruments play. Um, you know, being at the back of the second violin section, uh, which is where I spent many years as a kid, <laughs> um, was very helpful because you're right there, kind of by the woodwinds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And the brass, and you know, and so I, I really uh, could hear, you know, what are bassoons doing? How do they? What do they do when they're warming up? What's easy for them? What do they like to do? You know, and what are the kind of riffs that they like to play? And you know, what do horn players do? And stuff like that. So it was um, that was kind of my in, uh, orchestration classes, and um, uh, I've written three electric violin concertos, uh, I, uh, which are full symphonic. Uh, pieces. Um, I've written a lot of string quartet stuff. Back when I was with Turtle Island, I really learned how to arrange for non-classical string quartet, which uh, for them, which has been helpful in doing um, jazz arrangements and rock arrangements for string orchestras and string quartet stuff, which I've got a number of those. Um, but uh, it's it's tough to make a living as a composer. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, being a player composer helps that you can kind of get, uh, I've gotten, you know, these commissions to, to write these concertos, but uh, it's something that I do when I can, when I can, when, when there's, uh, when I can get a commission for something. Um, I, you know, and I've written songs for many years, you know, I've had uh, rock bands, you know, that I've been writing songs for, for, for ages. Uh, so, you know, it's just what I do, and... Um, Right now, I'm working on a project that's uh, not a classical thing. It's a project with my son, who's 12, who's cranking out beats, hip-hop beats. Oh, yeah. And so um, he was just cranking these out, things out for fun. And, and we'd just like, go in his room. I thought he was playing video games or something. What are you doing? He's like, oh, I got a beat. And I was like... And uh, he's just cranking out dozens of these, and they're all like, he knows, like, this one is a Logic type B. This one is a Cardi B type. This is a this end. Or producers who I've never heard of. And, um, uh, so I started playing on those things, so kind of writing tunes based around these beats that he's, that he's been doing. So that's what I've been doing lately. Um, you know. How fun is that? Uh, oh, it's awesome. I figure like, the, yeah, the worst that can happen is it's a father-son project. Like, sure. nothing ever happens with it, you know. But we're gonna, I'm gonna, my plan is to do, so, you know, like, to be super contemporary about this thing and not gonna put out an album. I'm just releasing singles. Sure. And we're just, just putting them out uh, digitally and putting them on Spotify, drive, you know, try to drive some traffic to Spotify and see if I can't um, get some streams on these things and, yeah. and build a Spotify fan base, hip-hop fan base, because I feel like it's my mission in life as this sort of electric violin, I, I don't want to say pioneer is way too, uh, you know, giving myself way too much credit. Well, I'll say it then. <laughs> but 
but I, I like to think of myself as somebody who's trying to, uh, I'm sort of an evangelist for electric violin and bringing this instrument to a wider audience who may not be aware of it. Sure. Whether that's the classical audience, at, you know, on a classical concert stage who would look down on an electric violinist as, uh, electric violin as some kind of a gimmick. Right. Until they see somebody like John Adams say something incredibly meaningful, and Terry Riley uh, say meaningful things with it, and then they take it seriously. Uh, or in the hip hop world, where I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm going to bring some of this classical rock, jazz expertise that I have as a weird eclectic performer who's been around for ages um, to a to a genre where maybe that's something, maybe that's a breath of fresh air for people who haven't heard anything like that combined or." aren't aware of that inst this instrument as being something that, hey, we should take this seriously, not just as a classically kind of strings production you know, element to a hip-hop song, but as a lead rock instrument. And we're, these are all instrumental tracks, so it's like something that's going to replace a vocal. It's going to be a, you know, a lead instrument, a violin. Most people wouldn't think that would work. Sure. And maybe it doesn't, but we'll see. It does. <laughs> it works. We'll make it work. So, is there a a tune or something that maybe you want to talk about, and uh, we'll just sort of dig deep into how that was written, how it was produced, how it was put together, how it was recorded, and then uh, we'll play it for people. Sure. One of the probably the tune that's got caught on for a lot of people um, for me is a, this piece Matisse. Mm -hmm. um, it's very accessible because it's a circle of fifths. Uh, so. Um, it kind of appeals to a classical audience who's really used to that, a jazz audience who's used to it, and it kind of rocks out. So, uh, this is a piece that was inspired by the great painting by Henri Matisse called La Danse, or just Dance. And it's got um, five uh, figures, very simple kind of outlines of figures who are holding hands and and dancing in a circle, and you can tell they're dancing because their legs are kind of up in the air, some of them, and they so, look like they're spinning around. And it's often been used as a um, symbol of the brotherhood of man kind of thing, you know, sort of how we can get along as a community and pull, you know. So, uh, so it has a good resonance like that. It's a iconic work of 20th century art, uh, and I love Matisse. So... Um, the story behind that was I was looking at the painting and um, just uh, allowing myself to sort of be inspired by it. Uh, and I thought, well, there's some music that they're dancing to and it looks like an improvised dance. They seem like they're just spinning around, like somebody just grabbed some people and they just started, you know, wheeling around. Um, what would that music sound like? What are they dancing to? So I imagined, so I just started improvising and I kind of came up with this rhythmic idea that, because obviously it's got to have some rhythm to it. Sure. Um, but I didn't want it to sound too uh, predictable. I wanted it to sound improvised. So I, I started just, um, without realizing it, combining meters, like four and six. You know, so you couldn't really tell what time it was, but you felt a pulse. Sure. So it was just kind of this pulse. And I like doing that, where the meters shift, but the pulse stays the same. And... Uh, um, so I, so I had this first, uh, idea and then I thought, okay, how am I going to write a piece based on that? Should I write a melody for it? And then it occurred to me, what if I, using a loop pedal, um, I 
introduced five different musical ideas, one each to represent these five characters. Um, so I tried to find ways to contrast that. So I had another one that was just short notes, and another one that's distorted like electric guitar, uh, and then another one that's kind of a classical riff, and then a bass. So I had five voices, stacked them up together, um, and one of the interesting things about music, one of the great you know, qualities of music in general is that you can have five voices going on at the same time and hear each one distinctly. Mm -hmm. And they make sense because there's this way of, through harmony and rhythm, we can organize different voices. And that's something that if you have five people speaking in a room together, it's noise. Right. But music can organize different counterpoint in a way that you can hear five voices and make sense of them. So sort of demonstrating that, which is something nice to demonstrate, like to high school kids, you can sure. point that out. You know, it's a nice little music educational feature. Um, so I get these five voices circling around, and I use a circle of fifths to, um, to represent the fact that it's a circle. It has no beginning or end, right? It's just continuous. You know, there's no start to it. Um, and then I kind of improvise over that. So it's sort of like jumping in the middle of a circle. Sure. And, and playing. So, so that's how that piece came to be. Yeah, it's incredible. Let's, uh, let's listen to it now.
gear? Do you want to talk gear at all? Yeah, let's talk some gear. I mean, I know you're, you know, it's a big part of what what you guys do at the right. electric violin shop and stuff. Um, you know, my journey with gear has been a long and uh, difficult one. <laughs> As everyone it's it's going to be a very expensive, expensive one. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I've got my my kid in his bedroom because he's also a guitar player now. Um, has like a huge pedal board, much bigger than mine. I've set up for him with all my old pedals that have been sitting around. And he keeps going, like, what does this pedals. one do? Oh, I want to put, can you hook this one up? I was like, I'm running out of cables, kid. And <laughs> so he's got like all these pedals that I'm not using anymore. And downstairs in my basement, I got amps. And, you know, we, we buy a lot of stuff that we need. And then a year later, it turns out we need something else. Right, well, the, the quest for the perfect time. Exactly. And, you know, um, I... I make fun of, of myself for that, but that quest for the perfect tone is so important. And one piece of advice I give to a lot of classical, uh, I mean, for uh, electric violin players who are starting out there who are asking, like, what kind of instrument should I get? What kind of gear should I use? The main thing I tell them is spend a lot of money. Don't get something cheap because it'll sound like crap. Yeah, you get what you pay for. You do. Uh, it's rare that you can that you can fool you know that equation, um, trick that equation. You know you. Uh, and the reason I say that is because don't you, don't have a crappy sound, okay? Because when people go out there with cheap, shrill, um, awful sounding electric violins, it makes it bad for. All of the rest of us <laughs> who are trying to get gigs and people are going electric yeah, violin. I've heard one of those. They I, sound terrible. Yes, exactly. So you owe it. You owe it to me. You owe it to Matt. You owe it to all of the of us who have been slaving away at this for for our careers, trying to get a good sound to sound good, to reflect on your community of electric violin string players. Um, the least you could do if you can't afford good gear is turn down the treble. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Just turn the treble down, folks. Um, but anyway, um, after many years, I discovered that the sound that I really that got me my sound was this right over here. So which when I walked in. Yeah, which is a Mesa Boogie um, preamp, the studio preamp, which is a two rack space thing full of tubes, um, which is built, I think, in the mid '80s or something like that, late 80s. It's got those 80s looking knobs on yep. it. Yeah. Um, classic Mesa Boogie um, amp and a 50-50 a power amp, which is also a separate two-rack space thing. And power putting that into a Marshall, a vintage Marshall 412 cabinet with 25-watt greenback speakers that are just creamy. They have original speakers in there, and they're just worked in and yeah. sound great. And that rig will sound crystal and warm and have the highs and the punch on the bottom end when you're clean. It'll it'll sound warm and crunchy when you distort it. It just sounds beautiful. Um, but it's heavy as can be and it's not anything I'm going to take around anymore. I used to cart that around to clubs. I don't do that anymore. Um... I used to uh, even go uh, just take the 
uh, for years I was taking just the preamp with me in a road case. Okay. And um, going through pedal board, my pedal board, and you going straight out to a PA from there because it has a recording out, which is pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got away with that for many years. And, and I just got tired of hauling around all those tubes. And when you're traveling with tubes, mm -hmm. you know what happens. I mean, you're replacing tubes. You're replacing tubes and they start chattering and they make noise. And if you're trying to record and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and the technology was changing and I decided I was going to go to a laptop based rig. Complete change of everything. Ableton based, um, using chains in Ableton of, of uh, chains of effects in there, and you could, you know, the world, uh, uh, the, there were no limits on what you, you know, you could put cra any crazy plug you want on there now, you know, you didn't have to go buying separate, separate pedals, and you didn't have to haul around a heavy, you know, um, pedal board with all of this metal on it, you could just have everything in the box like that. Uh, well, it turns out, you know, you not only need that, but then you need a MIDI foot controller, and you need an interface, and, right. you know, um, so that journey ended up leading me to a pedal board that was just as big as right. what I had come away from, but now was also, I had a certain amount of latency that was making me crazy, yeah. uh, and had this constant fear that at some point... The USB connection to my right. laptop, or the Wi-Fi connection. At one point, I was using a uh, an iPad that I had a uh, its own Wi-Fi connection to a laptop that was off stage, and I had the iPad on my pedal board, and it was talking through its own, you know, Bluetooth. And I'm like, at some point, I'm going to get up crash. on stage, and it's not going to be there. Uh, I used it for about two years. It never happened. I had a backup, and I also had a carry backups for everything because I was sure it was going to go down. I ended up hauling around more gear then than I was doing before. And I was like, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. It's good. One day is, you know, and the latency was driving me crazy. So I was like, there's got to be some alternative now. And I ended up, I walked into Guitar Center. I was like, I just wanted to get a little thing for, for I had to do this road gig. And I was like, ah, Maybe there's a new version of the Sans Amp. I, back in the 80s, there's this little tiny box that guitar players were using. Plug in, go out into a PA. It's like, I wish I had something like that. I can just put it in my back pocket. There's got to be something now. It's like 2000. This was, I don't know, four years ago. Um, and so I went into Guitar Center. They're like, no, Sans Amp doesn't have it. But we have this little, the smallest thing we have is this Digitech RP360. And it's a multi-effects unit. And I was like, multi-effects? No, 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 no. I, I try, you know, I'm never going to use something like that. They never, they always sound, you know, you get bad versions of everything, digital copies, sure. and nothing sounds good. And I'm a purist. I play through tubes. So I took this thing home. I started messing with it. And I'll be darned if the amp simulators in there didn't sound better than what I could get amp, miking up my amp here in my studio. I was like, wow. How do they do that? The technology has just come a long way. And for 200 bucks, this thing had 50 amps in it, you know, 75 different cabinets, yep. uh, all these different pedals. Uh, and I, I was astounded. I've been using it ever since. Now, I know there are new things now. There's the Line 6 stop thing. Yep. There's all kinds of stuff, you know. Um, since then, but I've used, been using this for about four years, and I've got all my sounds in there, so that's what I'm still using now, because, you know, anytime you're migrating to a new piece of gear, 
It's like, you know, it's like changing your laptop and upgrading your OS three steps because you fell behind. It's like, okay, now nothing works again. And yeah, I'm going to buy this new piece of gear. It's yeah. going to cost me 600 bucks and 200 hours. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Here's some more Turtle Island String Quartet grooving out with Who Do You Think You Are? So that's what I'm still using uh, for now. I'm uh, using the RP and an Eventide H9 for special sauce for, for those sounds that you can't get. You know, the RP does a great job, but it's, you know, how much, you know, um, how many chips can they throw in there for 200 bucks, you know? Um, so it's somewhat limited. And then my my looping, live looping, I've, I've been using for many years a boomerang. Um, and I swear by that, it's, a, it's different from a lot of them in that it doesn't have a click. Mm. Um, it's free time, you know. You got to nail it. Um, so I've been, that's but that's been my baby for many years. And also with looping is another one of those things where because I've used over the years, uh, I've been looping since the '80s. Believe it or not, I had a thing called the Oberheim uh, effect, uh, Echoplex. It was the digital version of the Echoplex that Oberheim had bought. And then Fender bought it from them. It was a rack mount thing with a separate dedicated foot controller. Um, and I, I was doing that in about 85 or 86, I think it came out, for, for many years before. And then I got the Roland uh, RC50, I think it was. It was a big floorboard um, looper. Uh, and, I, and it was just it wasn't working for me for years. I ended up with this boomerang. But my point was with loopers, you know, you end up writing arrangements based on what that pedal is capable of doing. It's got how many seconds of loop exactly. I can write for that. Exactly. And how many loops can I go? Can I go forward? Can I go backwards? Can I go from a my first loop to my second loop and then go back to my first loop? Right. Because a lot of them, the small ones, you can only advance forward. Right. Some of them you can retain. You can keep the loop in the memory when you unplug it and you show up at a gear with loops. Others, like the boomerang, you unplug it and it's gone. Um, so, there's you know, you end up, your whole set ends up getting designed around a piece of gear, which is... You know, uh, an unfortunate but kind of interesting facet of being an electric player. Sure. Well, the constraints, this is the thing that Doc Wallace talks about. Yeah. <laughs> the constraints are what allow you yeah. to write. Otherwise, you, you're paralyzed yeah. by an infinite number exactly. of solutions. Exactly. And, you know, that's a good point because it's very true 
uh, of our abilities as musicians in general. It kind of goes back to that art is not about being perfect, it's about being a person. It's about, you know, and what makes you a person is what you're strong at and what you're weak at. And, you know, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, and those define us, you know. And, um, yeah, and, and those are our constraints, our limitations, you know. Uh, and having some kind of parameters on what we're, what, what we can uh, do with gear is probably a good thing. You know, I, I kind of feel sorry sometimes, haha, for like the guys like Steve Vai or, you know, whoever who can, ha you know, buy any gear or don't even have to buy it. That stuff gets yeah. just given to them. And so they're, you know, their studios like walking into the guitar center, uh, you know, um, guitar section. It's like, well, how do you even choose? Where do you start? You've got, you know, five modeling amps that can do anything, you know. So uh, I, I do I find that a little intimidating. I'm glad that's not me. I am so glad people aren't throwing gear at me. That would be a terrible life. We might could we might <laughs> fix that. I got some content. <laughs> that's fascinating. Your sound at at the Mark Wood Camp was was breathtakingly good. It was Thank it you. was really good. In fact, when you started hitting those the bass notes. That, that whole room, it's like everybody got wrapped in a warm blanket. Yeah, well, again, like I said, you know, it was thanks to those subs, which I did not bring with me. But uh, one other little uh, item I, I want to mention is that um, on my fiddle, I, I would show it to you, but um, yeah. it's a podcast. Radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, is that I have the, the pickup, um, the Barbera pickup, um, but I also have a microphone. I have a little headset mic. I forget what what is the L six or whatever it is. It's the one that every a lot of singers use. Um, one of those tiny little uh, headsets. And what I did is I put it on the violin and bent the metal around so that it comes under my bridge and is just sitting right on under where you bow. Mm -hmm. So the microphone is kind of just uh, um, suspended uh, under under the strings. And the point of that is to pick up that bow noise. The pickup itself, um, those Barberas are great, uh, and, and they capture a lot of that, but there's a certain sound that comes just from a microphone. Yep. That's a kind of high-end room sound. It's almost sizzly or something. Sizzly, yeah. and it's a sense of space that comes just because the mic is hearing the room, it's hearing my breathing, it's capturing all of this reality. Uh, and I discovered this um, back when I was doing my Between the Kiss and the Chaos record. Um, it was with a string quartet, electric violin and string quartet. I arranged my uh, concerto, which was for electric violin and orchestra, reduced it to electric violin, string quartet. So we recorded the string quartet in this great room with great mics, and then I went home and overdubbed the electric stuff, because it was just the best way to do it. Uh, and when I did that, I, I started putting my parts and listening to it, and the string quartet sounded great, and I could hear them all breathing together. You know, you get that, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff that classical players do. And and uh, the, you could hear the rosin on the string, you know. And then I put my stuff, and it just had this lifeless quality. And that was supposed to be, like, kind of the lead instrument. And it just was... I, I would try to turn it up in the mix so I could hear it better, and I would have to keep raising it till it was too loud, and it just wasn't coming through. And I finally realized that it was because I didn't. I was recording it through. I was at that point. I was recording it through my amp, going through my boogie, through out of my Marshall, putting a nice ribbon mic in front of the amp, mm -hmm. doing the best I could, capturing that amp. 
but it just didn't have the kind of presence. You're, you're micing the amp and not you. Yeah. So then I, I decided to mic the amp and then put a microphone over the violin as if I was recording acoustic violin. And sure enough, it's, it captured that bow sound and the breath and all that kind of stuff to make it work with the string quartet. So I've been doing that ever since when I'm not in situations where I'm playing in a band because with that open mic. Mm -hmm. But when I'm playing John Adams concerto with an orchestra and I'm blending, trying to take this electric violin that's coming out of a PA system mm -hmm. on either side of the stage or above the stage up in the ceiling trying to get that sound to mix effectively with an acoustic orchestra on stage uh, and that really helps to have that microphone there. So, so you're getting, that's just running dry to front of house, yep. no effects or anything Nothing on, on that. And it, it's hearing the room and you breathe yep. in. I what I do is I use a, a wireless and it goes right into, I have a little tiny, the smallest Mackie mixing board, it's like a three channel mm -hmm. uh, little tiny thing and I put my um, line out of my pedals out of the last thing in my pedals which is stereo line coming out of the boomerang uh, and then I take this mono line coming off the microphone put it in there mix them which is just a taste of that microphone mm -hmm. the tiniest little bits all you need um, and I send that stereo signal out to the board okay and that's it and I'm using the, the amp simulators and speaker simulators from that RP 360 you know until at some point when I upgrade that that's you know that's been good enough for Sounded me really for good. for live you know that having that little microphone on there and the and the hollow instrument right you know um all of that just brings a certain round of realness to the yeah. sound i think now you know, i'm an engineer so as we say if it sounds good it is good exactly exactly you got to spend your time really take your time and tweak uh, tweak those amp simulators and you know the EQ is very effective on there and try different speakers you got to take your time there's no substitute people say you know how do you get that good sound man if I tell you how many hours I've spent with headphones on going back and forth back and forth this one or that one this one or that one you know? yeah I think somebody asked Bob Dylan about his, his writing process and he said if you watched me do it you wouldn't be that impressed <laughs> Here's a tune from Tracy's 2005 album called I'd Rather Be Dreaming. The tune is But Not For Me.
was a fool to fall. Uh, you know, there's one little aspect we didn't talk about, which maybe I, we can throw in here. You yeah, something. Edited, edited yep. earlier or not. Um, and, I, and I don't uh, mean this as a plug. I but I do have a book called Strumboing. No, please plug the book. Which please is plug, uh, plug the book. Okay, yeah. I'll get it. Just but it's at strumboing.com. Um, and uh, but I just want to talk about because I mentioned a little bit the strumboing as mm -hmm. something that I developed over years of playing in, in rock bands and being the rhythm guitar player. And uh, and I did this rec I did a record called I'd Rather Be Dreaming, by the way, which um, was a record that I did to pr try to prove to myself and to the world that. You could be a singer-songwriter with an electric violin, a six-string violin, and not have a guitar, not have a piano, and just have this one instrument while you're singing accompany yourself through various uh, types of songs. So I did a record like that, um, and uh, do and using a lot of this um, strumboing idea, and uh, without going into uh, a whole strumboing lesson on it, uh, the the idea of it is very simple. I, uh, um, the definition of it is using your bow like you're strumming a guitar. And the, and what it boils down to is keeping the subdivision of which a strum uh, defines, mm -hmm. you know. S you know, keeping that uh, faster motion. I'm shaking my hand here in a strumming motion for, <laughs> for those of you watching at home. Um, but when you do that, you know, you're strumming the subdivision. If the song is like, jang, chicka, jang, 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 your hand is going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, because you're strumming a guitar. But if you're a string player, you play it as it comes, down, up, down, up, down, up, or something right. like that. So there's so much lost right. when you do that. Right. And for what's mainly lost is the precision of the rhythm. You're not really locking into it with a drummer or onto what I call the grid. Uh, and you're not getting any of that ghosting pick noise or ghosting bow noise, whether it's in the middle of the bow or at the frog vertically. And I teach it in two parts, one horizontally and then vertically, uh, which involves the chop and all that kind of stuff. So that's my whole way of teaching string players how to groove, um, which has really become kind of my mission in life um, because like I say you know this whole idea of post-classical playing uh, a big big part of that is the fact that um, vi classical violin has always been based on the violin as a melodic instrument right. and playing melodies and because of that uh, um, is one of the well there's a lot of reasons why violin stopped getting used in the popular music of the 20th century from the jazz age on, and I know there have been jazz violinists and Stuff Smith and Joe Venuti and Def Stephen Crippelli, but it's always been uh, an outlier in the jazz world, which mm -hmm. was based on sax players and trumpet players and blah, blah, blah. Um, and violin was always this 19th century instrument that represented classical music. And one of the real uh, things that have been holding strings back from being a part of our contemporary American popular culture is the fact that it's not ever played as a rhythm instrument. Uh, it's always a melodic instrument, and one of the reasons for that is it's not really a chord instrument. We can't really play more than two, maybe three strings at a time. Um, as even a mando, it's the same tune, the same four strings, but you can strum all four of them. That's got frets, you can play chords better. Um, but when you add those six strings to a violin, it fundamentally changes that instrument. Uh, and because it's no longer just a melodic instrument that goes down into the cello range. 
it fundamentally changes it into a chordal instrument. Now we become like a guitar where we can play chords with bass notes and full chords and accompany ourselves or another singer as a self-sufficient chordal instrument. That's a, such a huge significant change of function in the instrument. Um, and it's really only until you get the five or six strings on there that you can do that because you need that extra lower instrument until our ear recognizes it as a bass note. Because sure. a mando, you know, it's kind of doesn't, it's not really yeah. accompanying. Well, G just doesn't get you it there. It doesn't get you there the way a guitar does. So it's the same kind of thing. So fundamentally changing the instrument to a chordal instrument means how do you play chords? And that's where the whole stromboing thing started from my years in rock bands. It's like, how am I going to do this? keep time for myself and, and and that you know significantly changes the violin into something that can now actually be a functioning part of contemporary rock and hip-hop and jazz and things like that contemporary American culture pop culture so that's kind of been my mission in life is to bring this uh, new functionality to to strings to help usher in this new age, post-classical age, which I see blossoming, uh, and places like the Mark Wood camp, uh, the Mark O'Connor camps, which were around for years, which were hugely influential in showing young string players and string teachers what's possible, what's out there, all these different genres mixing together rock and jazz and fiddling and stuff like that and all of this contemporary culture happening on strings that's you know what you're doing what the electric violin shop is doing uh and you know just pushing uh getting that ball down the field in terms of string players and and uh, opening up new vistas for our young string players yeah i mean you say it's a simple thing i've, I've watched all of your videos uh, and i'm sitting here working and practicing on this stuff too and it's it's a simple thought. Yeah. It's not super simple to execute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, highly recommend the book, the videos, the, the whole you, thing. Man. It's And here's the thing that I sort of figured out um, playing in rock bands starting back in the in the 90s, started after you, but um, I realized that I was probably, if budget got tight, I was going to be the first one they got rid of, right? Because I was... I was kind of a decoration. Yeah, expendable. And I thought, well, gosh, if I'm going to make myself an integral part of this band, I've got to do more than just take a fill and a yep. solo here yep. and there. Yep. I've got to start carrying some of the weight. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, even in a good night, if it's if it's my band and I'm the only soloist in the band, in a good night you're soloing, what, 15% of the time? Yeah, if you're lucky. The other 80, 85% of the time... You should be doing something to earn that paycheck, <laughs> I love and uh, it. Yep. you know. So I was, I sort of started. Well, gosh, how am I going to add to the structure of this song? Yeah, and it's a lot of the same yeah. kind of thoughts. So you know, what am I going to do? Like, I can well, I, I play nines, and I play thirteens that maybe the guitar player wasn't getting, yeah. and I can start adding different, um, you know, tonalities to the song. And then I wasn't really chopping or strumming per se, but there were. Some some percussive elements that you add in there, you go, yeah, you, I can do stuff that yeah that other that, that maybe the other instruments aren't doing, or at the very least, not get in the way. You yeah. know, if you can just as a string player, if you can successfully just fit in the pocket, if fit in that rhythm rhythmic yeah. groove, 
and and function as a rhythm guitar player, as a second rhythm guitar player who can, you know, throw in some leads, uh, and just not get in the way, you know, is so important for string players, because a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of them, especially the classical players, just don't know how to keep time listen. with their bow, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and, and that's what, why the, you know, the whole strum idea uh, helps you keep time. That's why guitar players do it. Yeah. You know, and like I say, I mean, if it, if it was so hard, you know, guitar, you know, <laughs> how hard could it be? <laughs> right, guitar, guitar players, players can do it. So, um, you know, but it's, it's there to, to help you stay in time. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, we're not taught that as string players, but not if, at all. But, you know, if you can just help yourself, make it easy for yourself. Uh, keep time, then you can, at least if you're in a band, uh, and, and especially if you don't have a drummer in the band, if it's a, you know, like a string band or something, somebody's got to keep time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, just learn how to fit into a pocket and keep a groove. It's the craziest thing I've seen. String players are, are notoriously bad at, yeah. at grooving. Yeah. And I've seen you with, with a classroom of people, and you've got a bunch of these, you know, middle school orchestra teachers. Yeah. You, you got them grooving. It's not hard. It's not hard. It's just different. It's yeah. just a different way of teaching strings. Yeah, it's killer. Thanks, man. Well, awesome. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's been a pleasure, man. Um, I'm glad to finally be on the on the podcast. Yeah, man. we should have started with you. My goodness. Yeah, I've been listening to it for years, and, and it's just an honor to, to be among such wonderful company. So where where can we find you and your stuff? Uh, TracySilverman.com. T-R-A-C-Y. No E. That's the girl spelling. No I's. <laughs> TracySilverman.com or Strumboing.com and I'm on Facebook I'm on Twitter I'm on Insta all that stuff uh, Spotify right? Spotify for sure yep okay awesome yep. well thanks so much for doing this thank you for uh, having me man it's been a pleasure Honor. awesome and there it is another episode in the books please subscribe like and comment on whatever platform you're listening on that helps us a lot We've got several really awesome interviews coming up that I can't wait for y'all to hear. In the meantime, if you haven't heard all of the other 40 episodes of Rockstar Violinist, yes, 40 other episodes of Rockstar Violinist, or if you think you might have missed something cool or funny in a previous episode, go back and listen. There's no rule against listening to one twice or even 11 times. It's cool. Thanks for hanging out. Go pick up some of Tracy's music on iTunes or wherever you find your music. And we'll see you next time with another rock star violinist.